Welcome to Powerhouse Politics, a special digital version uh, here with Ben Rhodes, a former Deputy National Security Advisor, actually somebody who was there for all eight years of the Obama administration and also very early on in the campaign. Thank you for joining us. Good to be with you, John. You've got a new book out. Let's make sure, since we are on yes. camera here, the world can see it. Uh, the World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. And you really were there for some of the most consequential moments. I want to get to your book, but we have some consequential stuff yes. going on yes. right now in totally the world. Totally understand that. Yeah. Um, and and I, my, my first question is, how often are you talking to, uh, to President Obama? Have you talked to him recently? Yeah, I mean, I talk to him quite regularly, uh, at least once a week, probably more. And I know he's been out there a little bit. I mean, he, yeah. he weighed in on Facebook on yeah. the child separation yeah. uh, policy. He obviously, you know, last year around the uh, the health care um, uh, votes uh, weighed in. I mean, I guess you're not going to tell me what he's saying to you confidentially, <laughs> yeah. but 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 uh, but I'm but but I'm wondering if you can give some insight into how he views all this and whether or not we're going to see him out in a more forceful and public way. I mean, after all, what we are watching, let's face it, is the undoing of the Obama legacy almost across the board. Yeah. Well, yeah, I describe in the book the strange sensation of being in transition and knowing that you're going to be replaced by literally the opposite. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if if Jeb Bush had won, or you know, even a Marco Rubio, it would have been different. You know, but we knew that essentially someone who represented the opposite of the politics of Barack Obama was coming in. You know, I think he'll be out there a lot more uh, on the campaign trail in the fall. Um, I think, like a lot of people, he believes this is an unusually important uh, midterm election because. Uh, if the Democrats are able to retain control of at least one branch of Congress, you will have a check on Trump. Uh, you'll have oversight and accountability for Trump. That will also shape, frankly, the 2020 election. Um, but on these issues, uh, as much as he cares about them, I think his belief is he needs to let other voices emerge. And if he was kind of the shadow government, you know, like in the UK or something, that would take up a lot of oxygen. And part of the problem, John, to be candid, is he was such a big figure and the Clintons were such big figures that not a lot of Democrats did emerge as national figures. Um, and that's why you had an election last time where it was just Bernie and Hillary on that stage. And and so I think he's very mindful. Let, let's let some other people step forward here and, and, and fill this, this gap. I remember being in there in the Oval Office uh, two days after the election when the president met with President-elect Donald Trump. Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 and as you know, that meeting ended up going on a lot longer than anybody yeah. anticipated. Uh, a- a- ABC was was pool that day, so I yeah. was waiting outside yeah. the Oval Office to go in for the photo op at the end of the meeting, and yeah. we were waiting for like an hour. Yeah. Um, and it was, uh, they, were, they were in there, the meeting went on forever. I got the impression seeing Trump when I, we walked yeah. in that he actually seemed for the first time in my experience ever covering him, seemed almost a little humbled experience. Yeah. I think I was yeah. wrong. Yeah, yeah. But, I, think uh, I think you probably were. <laughs> Didn't yeah. last. But, yeah. but, but, but a, little, yeah. a little freaked out by yeah. what he had heard. What, yeah. what, what, to, to tell us from your perspective yeah. that, that day, that meeting. Well, you know, and I talk about this in the book, that yeah. Obama called me up, you know, a couple of us up after that meeting. And we walk in, and he looked kind of bemused is probably the word, because... He said it was like one of the most unusual meetings he'd ever had because the first kind of half of the meeting, 
he's there and he's trying, he, Obama, is trying to lay out, you know, all these important issues and how do you think about health care and immigration and foreign policy. And all Trump wanted to talk about was his crowds. And he was trying to... It's amazing. It's actually kind of, you know, because you hear one president to another, yeah. one of the more dramatic moments. And, and he's saying to Obama... He's trying to bond over, like, we, you and I, we both got really big crowds. And Hillary, she couldn't get big crowds. Like, how did you get those big crowds? So I got big, you know. And, and you know, Obama said, like, he would keep steering the conversation back to this issue of crowds. Um, and then Obama would make his case for kind of health care and immigration. And Trump was kind of trying to, I guess, ingratiate himself. I mean, you've probably spent time with him. He's just saying, yeah, that sounds really good. I'll take a look at that. You know, like th- these policies that he had been eviscerating on the campaign trail, he was expressing kind of an openness to, which uh, in retrospect clearly wasn't sincere, but, you know, that's kind of his style. I do think Obama got through to him on issues like North Korea, North Korea. and terrorism. Like, you know, th- look, <laughs> these are the things. Um, okay, maybe we're not going to get into the details of Obamacare here, but, like, you must take this seriously. So it may be that by the end of that meeting, um, he was able to at least get through to him on the, the consequence of, of North Korea and, and I think terrorism, he told us as well. I actually asked Trump, and, and, and you remember Obama said, you don't have to take their questions. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, he answered yeah. me. I said, are you going to seek his advice going forward? And he said he would, but I guess those calls haven't really come. They really haven't. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they, they did in the transition. Um, there were, you know, two, three or four more calls. Um, but then it just, you know, once we got in the White House um, and then once Trump started tweeting about, you know, wiretapping Trump Tower and, I mean, he clearly took a turn back to yeah. seeing Obama as a, as a foil. I've been struck by how many pot shots he's taken at, at President Obama. Some of them unprecedented. Some of them, you know, as you mentioned, the wiretapping, there's no base for that yeah. whatsoever. It's really a malicious yeah. thing. But there's a lot, lots of little things. Obama failed to this. Obama failed to yeah. that. Why don't we see the president engage in saying, no, that's not true? Yeah. Well, um, you know, again, part of it is what I was saying about letting other voices emerge. I think another part of it is, you know, if Obama was down in the knife fight uh, with Trump, it would in a way diminish him. Um, and that's what Trump wants. You know, Trump wants to knock Obama off a certain pedestal and have him doing back and forth about what he's saying on Twitter. It's almost like he's trying to bait him into it. And I think Obama realizes that his influence will actually in some ways grow if he's not seen as a person who's in that mud fight. Um, so that when he does hit the campaign trail, for instance, it will be a much more dramatic thing um, than if he'd been sitting here you know, going back and forth on Twitter. So Ben Rhodes, when you see the images that have come out in the last couple of days, and they're 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 jarring sights and sounds, I'm curious whether you're thinking back to the migrant crisis uh, at the border. I think 2014 was probably yeah. when it really came to to its head. And at the time, there was a lot of publicity about the fact that President Obama was splitting up families. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't the the same zero tolerance policy, um, uh, but um, the offshoot of the policy was that there was quite a few children being detained. Yeah. One response we've seen from the Trump world uh, is that this was essentially building off of what President Obama was doing in the first place. Do you think that's an accurate critique? And what's going through your mind as you're watching these tough issues play out? Well, it's not an accurate critique. Um, you know, there are two differences that are important. Um, one, we never had a policy of forced separation of children from their parents. Um, and those are the images that have been the most wrenching. Um, a lot of the children who, you know, ended up in, you know, uh, uh, in U.S. custody 
um, were unaccompanied. That was the so we were dealing with a slightly different issue, um, but we would never. And we actually you know, looked at the range of policy options and rejected the notion of, of ripping children away from their families. But you did do separations. My understanding, if there were drugs or weapons involved in 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 the parent. Right? What we did is we put it through the judicial process first. So in other words, what Trump did is they got to the border because. And the second difference is Trump is criminalizing asylum seekers. Um, it is not a crime to. Uh, reach our border. Um, and, and so what we would do is actually have the process where you go before a judge. And, and yes, then if there's some, some reason, as there would be in our judicial system to have a separation, you would do that. But what Trump is, was doing is deciding to criminalize just getting here uh, and seeking asylum and then deciding as a matter of policy to separate children from their families. Um, and, you know, it's the most wrenching thing, you know, I can imagine, uh, you know, as a parent. I also think, you know, obviously I have the international, um, you know, that was my background. You know, as much as it shocks our conscience, I also worry about, you know, these images are being consumed around the world. And it, 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 there's a you know, diminution of American influence, I think, that goes along with, with these types of images. I want to come just a bit back to the book. You write, obviously, a lot about the, uh, the Syria crisis. And, you know, obviously, the president, ultimately, after the, um, the, the, the sarin gas attack yeah. and the red line, decided that he would seek congressional approval thereby effectively deciding not to act because there was yeah. no way that Congress was going to uh, was going to approve that resolution looking back at what has unfolded in in Syria um, and there was there, there was there was kind of there were some self-congratulations at the time uh, when with, with the deal with Russia yeah. to deal with the, uh, the the chemical weapons which I mean in hindsight you've got to say was a failure because he's using chemical weapons again. Does, are you are you at all haunted by 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 what has happened uh, in Syria? Not that there yeah. was ever a magic yeah. solution. Yeah, no, no, and it's a fair question. But I, uh, but uh, it's I mean it's hard to imagine it being much worse than it is. Yeah, I, I am haunted, and I'll I'll get to that. I, I on the congressional piece, um, you know, I walked through this in great detail uh, this week where the sarin gas attack took place, and then we watched kind of the unraveling of the type of conditions you would want to take a strike. Um, the British Parliament voted against letting right. the UK in. Merkel told us she couldn't support it. Um, we had no international you know, mandate like we had in Libya to go in. And then Congress started banging the drum saying, you have to come to Congress. And we got these kind of warning letters from Boehner saying this would be unconstitutional. And, and I remember Obama saying he literally feared given the toxicity of the relationship with the Republicans, you know, they could impeach him if he went into Syria and we had to sustain a military intervention without an authorization. And so he basically decided, if I can get authorization, then I'm in a strong position to sustain a military intervention if we take it. If I can't, it's not going to succeed. You know, we already didn't have a good military uh, option in front of us. To, so it's both the question of are you justified in acting, but also can this work? And without international support or congressional support, or kind of a clear option that could work, um, I think he decided that then it wasn't worth doing. I still think that that chemical weapons deal, even if it didn't eliminate everything, it eliminated thousands of tons of sarin gas. We know that. That was verified. That wasn't there for use by Assad or to potentially be overrun by ISIS. So it, it still accomplished something. What I'm haunted by, John, and I, is, there's everybody focused on the red line, at the very beginning of that, before it became such a complicated civil war that you didn't have a good military option, could we have done something different in that window? Supporting the opposition well, while there was an actual that's, opposition. That's one idea. The other is, frankly, did we miss some diplomatic opportunity? I, as much as I believe strongly that Assad like, should not lead Syria, by calling for him to go, did we foreclose the opportunity to have diplomacy? In other words, could we have 
had more uh, of an opening uh, to pursue something with the Russians and, and, and the Europeans and others. You know, you have to look back at each moment. And, the, the, you know, every, the red line, understandably, people focus on. But as people look back on, on how can we prevent these things going forward, um, I think we should look at our whole toolbox. Because um, and, and, and it already started to spiral out of control. By the, time. By the red line thing, it was already such a complicated civil war where you have you know proxies and Russia and Iran backing Assad and terrorist organizations and that it, 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 it eluded the type of military option that can be presented to the president that you know if you will do this it will make it better um, and so what was always hard for him is uh, to take that step of going into Syria in a serious way because we've seen with Trump you know if you just bomb a runway it doesn't really change the underlying con- uh, conflict and, and by the way the military operation that you were contemplating the Obama uh, Pentagon was contemplating um, uh, was going to be far more robust yeah. than what Trump did, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, we had a very significant target set. It wasn't um, just a few. It wasn't just, it wasn't a, just runway. a runway. It was. It was basically taking the opening. Uh, I mean, you know, the tragic opening of you know p- uh, imposing a cost for the Tamil weapons attack to kind of take out a bunch of their uh, infrastructure. Yeah. Ben, I, I'm struck by some of the conversations you recount right after the election, um, some of the musings and, uh, and meetings. And, and pre- the President Obama, I think, seems typically to have a very kind of 30,000-foot view of yeah. all of this. He's able to take the long view where a lot of his supporters certainly haven't been able to. Yeah. A couple of the observations that I want to play out a little bit, with his, him saying at one point, Maybe this is what people want. This yeah, the, the, yeah. he set up now this yeah. this character. Um, his suggestion that maybe we were ten or twenty years too early. That he yeah. came along a little too early. And and one that really sticks with me: what if we were wrong? Yeah. What if we were wrong? When you when you think about that observation, and you back it over to your long time with with President Obama, what would have gone differently in terms of your world of foreign policy of international relations? If you had known now or known then what you know now about that mindset, uh, would you have been reaching out more for bipartisanship? Would you have been reaching out more or less to to allies if you were able to have that kind of longer view at the time that maybe the country just wasn't where President Obama thought it was? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, to unpack those, you know, the maybe this is what they want. You know, he was expressing some frustration that. Trump could not have been elected in 2008 because we were in a financial crisis uh, and we were much deeper in a war. And that because in a a kind of tragic way, because the economy was growing and because we didn't have 150,000 troops somewhere, people were willing to sign up for kind of the cartoon reality show. Um, The the 10 years point was really a demographic point, which is, you know, politically – you know, Donald Trump probably could not get elected president of the United States in 10 or 20 years when the dem- demographics of the country had shifted so that kind of really an, an overwhelmingly white coalition that is kind of reactionary couldn't muscle him across the, the goal line. The what if we were wrong point is a bigger one. Um, and that, you know, I think progressives, uh, you know, what we were alluding to there, progressives sometimes make the mistake of assuming that things are going to move in a certain direction. You know, the world is going to become more tolerant, more inclusive, diversity is a value, and and you can underestimate the extent to which there can be a backlash. Um, you know, when I think back on what we could have done differently, um, it's hard on foreign policy uh, just because 
you know, those issues, you're, you know, contrary to what people might think, you're, it's hard to weigh politics. You're just, you, you know, uh, you're making judgment calls uh, as they you're come at you. You're dealing with the world as it is. You're dealing with the world <laughs> as it is. But I, what I would look at is the investment in building the party. Um, and, and when I, you know, at the beginning of this, I was a political staffer on that 08 campaign. We never made this Obama coalition something like those, that coalition never turned out in any other election. Mm-hmm. They didn't turn out in 10, they didn't turn out in 14, and they didn't turn out in 16. And we never figured out a way to essentially connect that coalition to the Democratic Party. And frankly, nobody can objectively look at the Democratic Party over those eight years and think that it got anything but weaker, yeah. you know. And um, so I, I do look back and wonder, you know, and again, I wasn't I mean, that seems to absolve myself of responsibility. We're all part of the enterprise. Like, but but did, what could have been done in that in that regard uh, to try to to make sure that this movement he had built that was so successful in electing him would be accessible uh, to to the party and to other candidates? I mean, it was amazing to see the numbers. Uh, the Democratic Party on the state level, yeah. you know, lose governorships, state houses, yeah. uh, lose you know those terrible defeats uh, for Democrats in the in the in those midterm elections, and then president win two commanding victories yeah it's <laughs> you know? yeah yeah um yeah so um I, I i know you have to go i want to i want to come back to that campaign and and that that debate in in yeah. 2007 yeah. yeah when um then candidate barack obama floated the idea that he suggested that he would be willing to meet with our enemies even yeah. knock medina out of iran yeah. Yeah. or yeah. you know leaders of terrible places like yeah. well like maybe i don't know to pick one north korea yeah <laughs> yeah um how surreal! We could, could, I mean, you were yeah, there. Yeah, I, I could talk could about you, that. Sir. Could you ever have imagined that 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 it would actually come to pass that a president of the United States would meet with the dictator of North Korea? That it would be a Republican president, yeah. and that his base would applaud him for yeah. doing so. Well. Uh, I do describe, you know, the first week I went to work for Barack Obama was that week of that debate. And so the first thing I had to do was defend, you know, talking to Iran, Cuba, and North Korea, I think were really the three countries. Without preconditions. Without preconditions, right? And, um, you know, now fast forward the tape. um, I have to say that it was as difficult a couple of weeks. um, You know, people ask how hard is it to watch this happen. You know, to see him blow up the Iran deal which was painstakingly negotiated over six or seven years, sanctions and then diplomacy, and that uh, has all this verification, has all these inspections, ships the nuclear material out, and call it a disaster of a deal, break with the rest of the world to pull out, and then go all by himself to meet with the dictator of North Korea, get kind of this empty commitment to give up their nuclear weapons that they've given in the past to several presidents, give away stuff, and then declare it a huge success was uh, was surreal. Praised by Sean Hannity. Uh, uh, well, the same. Yeah, I mean, it, it, sometimes the hypocrisy crosses yeah, right. to a degree of absurdity. Um, and, you know, I and I would say, like we we pursued diplomacy obviously with Iran and Cuba. Um, North Korea, uh, <laughs> precisely because of what happened. You know, we, we, there wasn't an opening uh, where they we thought they were really prepared to do something. I'm actually glad that they got off the kind of ramp to war that they're on and into diplomacy with North Korea. What I would have liked to have seen them do differently in, in the Cuba and Iran negotiations, which I talk about in length that here, we did differently, is we spent a lot of time, you know, you wouldn't put Obama in the room with Kim that fast. You know, we would have taken a year, you know, of prep meetings, 
working level meetings, build an agenda, know exactly when you want to get out of that meeting. Trump seemed to want the spectacle more than he wanted to actually get well, and, something. And maybe maybe that ends up working. I mean, maybe maybe the the way of that that long ramp up ends up taking you nowhere. And maybe I mean they, they showed him that crazy video. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, who knows? I mean, I mean we had Ernie. We had Ernie Moniz, like a nuclear physicist in our prep meetings, like <laughs> yeah, talking about centrifuge I mean, technology. I mean, Trump is some guy making a trailer. <laughs> right, um, right. I, look, we obviously wanted to work as Americans. My my concern is that, you look, well, just what to watch for. Is there an inspections regime that is not governed by the North Koreans? So are, are, impossible are people outside of the country? country. Yeah. And then two, is there a timeline for them to denuclearize? And, and thus far, there's neither of those things. And frankly, I think they could have gotten something in that space if they had taken a little more time yeah. and less time on the movie and maybe a little more time on, <laughs> on nuclear <laughs> physics, you know. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Ben Rhodes, author of The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. Thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. Uh, Thanks a lot, John. We, we hope to have you back. Appreciate When's the that. next book? I gotta get to work on that. All right, that's all the time we have now. I want to thank our team: Angie Yak, uh, Avery Miller, Rick Klein, uh, Trevor Hastings. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>